Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. I am incredibly proud of the Nolan Show and what it achieves, okay? Like, it achieves an awful lot. But it is so big, and it is a typically so big an audience that that does not make me feel safe. That makes me feel unsafe. In the last episode, I conducted a long interview with Stephen Nolan, Northern Ireland's most powerful journalist. I find it very difficult to accept that I'm successful, you know, Failure is a big word in my life, but I felt like a complete failure. He spoke about struggling to accept that he is successful, what he's got wrong as a broadcaster, his frustration at not having a family, and how he has changed. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a different presenter now than I than I was, but I'm still chasing the ratings. Do you, do, do you recognise that you're powerful? I don't feel it. I do not feel powerful. I think you're in a very powerful position, being able to go home and use whatever salary you have to spend your money on your kids. For me, that's power, and I'm powerless that way. In this episode of The Bell Tell, I've returned, this time with more personal questions. His relationship with his late father, his wealth, his insecurity, and his determination to stay at the top of broadcasting. You know, I don't want this thing to end. I want to keep on fighting for it to, to stay up there. You said when we spoke the last time, Stephen, that you keep on wrecking things. You talked about the 11 plus, you talked about different things. What do you, what do you mean by that? I mean that there is, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, I've just got this word failure written all over my brain um, in that, uh, and I, you know, clearly a psychologist would have a field day with that. But I'm just aware that throughout my life, I've had opportunities and abilities to do and and certain ability to do certain things. But when it's then come up to the point of kind of, is it is it really on the money? Is it really successful? I've wrecked it. So I, I just have that 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 awareness in me, be it when it was sport as a child, um, I got too fat to be able to you know, be as good as maybe I had the potential to be. I was a pretty academic kid in primary school and I wrecked it on the day of the exam. Um, uh, And, you know, if we fast forward to now in the BBC, you know, you, you are getting a sense that very few other people have got in that the perception of me on this programme, of whatever way people perceive me, the strong, you know, people might think arrogant character, actually what's in my mind is, this is so big, this is so powerful, keep it successful, don't wreck it. I am not getting pleasure um, all the time out of it. I love it, I love the job, but I keep on thinking, how can I, you know, the radio is evolving into digital now. So what's in my mind is, you know, I need to make sure I'm ahead of the curve because I can't wreck where it is. It's just this constant worry. On one level, you say that you think you're a failure in some regards. Clearly, in lots of regards, that's nonsense. Um, and, and, and you know that in your mind, whatever whatever that other aspect of your um, of your head is telling you. One aspect of your success is your wealth. 
and I know that you're restricted in terms of what you can say about how your BBC salary is broken down, but do you know roughly how much you're worth? So I'm not, I, I, I don't think, I don't want to put a worth on a human being. I think the no, amount, no, no, of, sorry, amount, I mean, of, the amount of assets I have, have yes. I think I have um, three million quid okay. of, of assets and, and money, okay. somewhere, along, somewhere around that, okay. which is astonishing given where I started. I, I looked at the accounts of Third Street, Third Street Studios, which is your main, yep. um, your main um, corporate vehicle, and so you're the you're the sole shareholder, I think, mm-hmm. and the sole director. And they the, the last accounts are a bit out of date now, but they are the most up to date ones on the on the company's house website. They say there's about three point seven million pounds of um, of assets. So that's that that's broadly right. That's I mean I'm essentially yeah. trying to get a sense of is that am I am I understanding that correctly. I mean, you you said the last time you're the you're the boy from the Ballygo Martin Road. You have um, come from a working class background. You've come into the system from outside. You've been a bit of a disruptor, to put it mildly. But it isn't the reality that that's not who you are anymore. On one sense, you're one of the wealthiest people in Northern Ireland. You're one of the most powerful people in Northern Ireland because they're people with that level of wealth. But they don't have very much power. People don't know who they are. They're nobodies in terms of walking down the street. You're somebody who can pick up the phone to the most powerful people in Northern Ireland. You can get access to those people. You can put them under pressure. You can put them on the spot. Do you recognise that? Well, sometimes I think, you know, there's a lot of power and nobody knowing who you are. Uh, a lot of power. Um, because a lot, a lot of those people, I know some of those people you're talking about who are, you know, a lot more wealthy than I am and they've got a considerable amount of power because nobody's scrutinising what they're doing. Um your question is, do I recognise how much power I have? Yeah, that, that that you've changed over time. Well, I can answer that by saying I do not feel personally powerful. I really don't. I actually think if I did, I might be slightly more comfortable in my own skin. Comp- when you talk about my money, what my money has given me is freedom, um, is, a, is, a, is a security that, look... Um, See the Stonewall podcast I did? I genuinely thought that that could have... Um, I don't think it could have ended my career. I thought it could have affected my career. I thought there would have been so much pushback, and there's quite a lot has gone on behind the scenes of that, right? Um, what, and, and, and now that I have the amount of money I have, do I feel that, look, you know, clearly there are political parties who would wish that I was not here... There are stories that potentially get me into trouble. There are people who, for some reason, never like me, don't like, I've never met me, don't like me. The money for me gives me a sense of security, which I didn't have before. I also, what the money does for me is, um, the money means that no matter what my mother needs, she can have it. It means no matter what the people I love, need they can have it um this is a very precarious game this business and so i worry less now that you know i'd be devastated if the bbc got rid of me but if the bbc gets rid of me my mortgage is paid so that's what the money gives me what i'm learning as i get older like i made a decision there to get my okay it's an s-class mercedes but it's a four-year-old it's four-year-old in april uh, I, I have less interest in material things except my house. So I love pumping money into my house. That's my addiction. So I love the kind of comfortable environment and, and any money I have I'm putting in the house. That's where mentally I feel completely safe. That is absolutely my sanctuary. It protects my mental health. Um, I want that house to be, you know, if I, the money that I earn, like I'm currently doing a room up downstairs and I, I can't think of loads of things that I've cleared my mortgage just last month, um, which was a big moment for me. I wanted to clear the mortgage before I was 50 and I'm 50 next year. And so I've, I've done that. Um, 
And I, I definitely, and I take that off. My mother's changing her house every two minutes, painting walls and all that. And the, the house is the house is so important to me, and where it is. So you've you've thrived in the capitalist system. You've made a lot of money because you work very hard and because you've got talent and because you have pushed yourself and you've succeeded and you've got breaks and you've taken them. And yet I've I've spoken to different people that know you over the last few days and um, from different contexts. And one of the words that keeps coming up is generous, that you're generous to your friends, that you're generous to different people. Why? If that's not a stupid question to ask, are you generous when in a capitalist system, why why give away your money? If you have got it, it's yours, you've earned it, you've worked hard for it. Lots of people don't think that that's the sort of person you are. Well, thank you for asking that question of other people. Um, because I want to do... I'm trying to be a good person without that sounding so fake. So that's why I want to... That's the part of money. Helping, helping people. Look, I'm very, very good to myself. So let's not make any mistake about it. Um, I'm really good to myself. But the the feeling that you get out of helping some other people is pretty amazing. And I don't always feel good. So that feeling is pretty special. Um, and actually, I should be doing more. I should be using whatever money I have. Uh, to do more so I don't like you, you say I'm generous you know I'm kind when I can be but I could be kinder you were talking about friends of yours who are wealthy but they can walk down the street and people don't know who they are you're not like that and you must get people coming up to you all the time you're one of the most famous people in Northern Ireland one of the most recognisable faces do you enjoy that? Um, I'm so used to it that you, you don't you don't enjoy it and it doesn't irritate you. It's part of my life. So I'm very, very used to it. Um, uh, I, 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 I enjoy the reality check of it, which is compared to the trolls and social media, when I'm out on the ground in the street, people, the reality check of in the real world when people are coming up and they're talking about stories you're doing, they're thanking you for fighting for them, or they're giving you a bit of flack, but it's in the Northern Irish, you know, we know you, Stephen, here's what we really think way. That's really, really nice. Yeah, and it's really important because if you didn't have that and all you have is Twitter, you'd go mad. And what are, what are the downsides of always being on display? Um, I'm very protective over Audrey and that's one of the downsides and it's wee small things like um, last year a guy came up with his with his camera phone and had he just have been he was he was having a go at me about something but had he have been just having a go at me there was no problem but Audrey was there and it was a problem you know last week mum's 81 now she's on a relator we were parking on forest side um, she, her blue badge was on the, the windscreen but this guy she just got out of the car and this guy came up and tapped my bonnet you're not disabled get out of this place and all of that and I'm just kind of I'm embarrassed from, from my mum because I don't want her getting any of that kind of stuff and what, what would you say I mean there are lots of people and probably especially young people these days who want to be famous they want to be famous almost more than they want to have a particular job what would, you, what would you say to those people about what fame really means? means nothing, except, okay, so there's two parts to that. Fame, I feel sorry for people that want to be famous so that so that people know who they are, okay? It means nothing. Um, it's vacuous. It'll always end in an empty feeling if that's what you want to be. However, in this day and age, and I, you know, part of, Part of the success of The Nolan Show is that I clocked this at the very beginning. The BBC is not a place in terms of news that that where it is comfortable. It was comfortable in the past with big personalities dealing with the news, okay? Um, 
I clocked at the beginning, maybe about 15 years ago, that that's when I was coming in and there was the David Dunseaths and there was those big figures. If I was going to compete with those excellent broadcasters, I needed to be a bigger personality. I needed everybody to know who was Stephen Nolan or else I would shrink and die. So being famous is vacuous. Having a brand in the media is more and more important. And I clocked that earlier on and it's going to be more and more important in the future. So in the future, you know, the radio in the car is going to, you're going to be able to access any radio program in the world that you want. So take nine o'clock in the morning. I people, I need people to be seeing my big fat face in their brain thinking, what am I about? Who am I? And that brand being the most powerful brand that I can make it. That's what that part of theme is strategically important. Isn't is it one aspect of that that you then are a product and you're not just a product in the way that a lawyer is a product because of his talent and his ability, your personality, your the fact that there's mice running around your house or whatever it is, all of this commodifies you essentially. You're you're selling yourself as a product. Yes. Absolutely. Does, does that does that unsettle you at any point? No, not professionally, no. No, definitely not. It's actually it's actually vital to the success of what I do in the BBC. So people need, you know, you don't pick up a can of Coke and think, is this, you know, orange aid? So people need to know what the Nolan person is. And, you know, one of the most powerful, I'll tell you now, um, if the BBC ever commissioned it, it would be a higher rating than anything I've ever done. You see the videos I make of my mother, Right. That's what punches through um, as much as anything else. Because people, people, I think, want to know the person behind the... This is why I hope they get a sense of this through what you're doing. But um, I think Northern Irish people, I don't know about anywhere else, but here people do want to know who you are, what are you about, what are your values, what's your mum like, Uh you know, at some stage people said to me, why are you admitting you get parking tickets? You know, why do you let that photo out of you of this, that and the other? Well, it's kind of who I am. It's done all right so far, I think. When we talked the last time, you said that one of the reasons you thought you were a failure was that you didn't have a family. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's that, that's a very personal thing and there's lots of people who'd love to have a family and can't for various reasons. Um, have you given up on having a family? Um I may make a, I, I, I want to do a, I'm actually thinking about doing a podcast on this, okay? Um, should I think about surrogacy? There's lots of ethical value, uh, uh, considerations around that, which I'm taught, wrestling with in, in my head. Should I think about adoption? As soon as I think about adoption, one half of my brain says yes, the other half says I'm not good enough for that child, I'm not organised enough for that child, um, you know, uh, it's back to that would I wreck it thing. Um, so I, I, I consider it to be the biggest failure of my life that I don't have a child. And you've approached so many aspects of your life with single-mindedness um, and you say that's the biggest failure um, and I'm not, you can tell me if I'm being too um, forward here, but why if that is the biggest failure why have you not done more about it and that's that's a that's a very forward question but you're talking frankly um well i think you know part of the reason why it's 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 difficult to do something about that um but not impossible i guess um so the first sam the first uh how long am i in here now is it 15 years I'm in here? or 19 years. Nine, is it, it's nearly 19, 20 years. Yeah. yeah, it's 18 years. You're right, it's 18 years. So I would say the first 14, 15 years of my life has been completely, you know, dedicated to getting the Nolan show to where it is. Uh, and I mean... Like I mean, morning, noon, and night. 
like this thing doesn't happen by osmosis and it doesn't stay where it is by osmosis and all of that. Now, there, there's a team behind me, as you know, working really hard as well. But at the end of the day, the, the presenter needs to have a vision, needs to drive it, needs to add that extra percentage on. That's why I'm paid when I'm paid. So, um, you know, so far, until a few years ago, it was my absolute obsession. I think it's now still an obsession, but I'm creating a wee bit of time for me. So that's where the 12 weeks of holiday going away are. That's where, call it whatever you want, it's more than a hobby, but that's where me spending a bit of time, me putting into my house what I want there. I wasn't doing any of that. I was morning and night, I was thinking television ideas and what to do and what not to do and stories every single day. And the other reality with this program is there is so much coming into us that I could spend every waking moment of every single day on that show. And I think part of growing up is to understand that uh, I have a little bit more, I deserve a little bit more than just work. Mm. And I'm trying to work out what that should be and, and how it should be. Um, uh, I just love a family. Let me ask you about your family because your dad died. Yeah, people people know that. It was quite a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I can't remember. What sort What sort of person was he when you were growing up? He was he was a, a, a salt of the earth working class man. Um, I'm told, unlike me, he was very good looking when he was young. He was a very good footballer um, when, he, when, when, when he was young. Um, but again, you know, I, I, I have memories of my dad. I have one of those kind of regrets that I wasn't able to achieve the salary levels earlier in my life because... Like I, I, I worked in the West Circular Road petrol station for about, I don't know, 10 years, something like that. Um, and on a Friday, uh, I remember giving my dad a tenner or 20 quid or whatever out of my salary. And that wasn't housekeeping money. That's because um, by the time he had paid the mortgage and paid the car loan and everything else, my school fees, he had no money. He had literally no money. And like, again, I, I just wish I had of, I just, it's, it's, I don't consider it a failure. I don't give myself that hard a time about this, but I so wish that I had of, I had of been on the earning cycle I am now then, because there's the power of money. Now, what I did do was, uh, I bought him a car one Christmas day and I managed to do that for him. Um, That's quite a Christmas present. But the, the, the type of person he was, was, and it's the same with my mum, just two parents who are absolutely obsessed with loving and protecting and doing everything they could for their kid. And maybe that comes back to what I've just said. I can't do that because I don't have the kid. <laughs> um, but uh, his... his uh, his death was also pretty traumatic, uh, and it was it was sudden, wasn't it? Relatively yeah. Sudden. So he he, you know, he, I was over in England working for Five Live, uh, and um, got news that he he was up in the hospital. You know, he had pains in his side or whatever, and. Um, so I rushed home and he was he was up in one of the wards just standing there with this pain and it, you know within a few hours they weren't worried about him and within a few hours he was in intensive care with pancreatitis and then he was there which is unusual he was there for six or seven weeks now intensive care you go into and you either survive or you die relatively quickly it was a long 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 time he, he was in there um and to see your father, people maybe don't realise you haven't experienced this, but if you're lying in bed in hospital for seven or eight weeks, your your muscles waste away. And to see this strong man who was my father, um, 
he was spelling out words on a spelling board thing. Um, he couldn't lift his hand very much to do that. Uh, was um, it just it it, it 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 gave me this? It, it was a sudden. I know it's obvious, but it was a sudden reminder for me of how quickly things can change. Bang. Um, and that's that's what happened. And now, you know, mum and him were married for 50-odd years, so, you know, that's a big... I need to play a big role in protecting her. If we come back to your professional life, what can you say about the offers that you've had to go elsewhere professionally? Um... So, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. So, are you talking about since I've been in the BBC? Yes. Okay. So, um, one of our main television channels uh, offered me uh, more than my total salary that I'm getting from the BBC to do five days a week of television. So I was I was offered uh, my published salary is what four hundred and ten grand or some get that right I don't know exactly what it is. Thousand, yeah. So I was offered rather than having to do seven days a week three different jobs, I was offered more than that to do a five day week telegate. Um, for a national station, for a national TV station, um, in terms of radio. Uh, it's a similar story. Their offers are network radio five days a week uh, and it's more. So what it would do is it would give me Friday, Saturday, Sundays off. I would have weekends off and I'd be working for the network. So the network offers have been more than BBC Northern Ireland. What I'm trying to do, to give you my game plan of what I'm trying to do, is I'm not embarrassed about the amount of money I'm earning, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to my my, my uh, what I'm doing is I'm working three jobs seven days a week because I want to stay in Northern Ireland and I want to stay in BBC Northern Ireland and I'm therefore saying to myself how I will achieve the same amount of money is by working harder, working three jobs and that's how I'm rationalising in my head turning down the one big job. What about Jonathan Bell? That was an extraordinary interview that you did with him. Have you had contact with him since? No. You ever bumped into him? No, I haven't. Um, That's fairly remarkable. When, when you think about what was said at the public inquiry by, I think it was David Schofield, who's now a high court judge, counsel to the inquiry, saying that this, this was gripping television. It was one of the most dramatic moments in Northern Irish political history. And you were the two central characters there, and he's just vanished. Yeah, and I would I would actually love to know and I would hope that Jonathan feels that he was treated fairly. Um but like it was it was like out of a movie uh when he came down. Like he had phoned me out of the blue and I don't know what it was. I don't let anybody in the house. In fact, not even not even you this time, that's because the house has been done up. Um I just this just whatever it was he said to me, I need to come down to the house. And my instinct was no. And then, you know, he had these government files and this, just me bringing them down. Um, we sat in a room downstairs and um, one of the funny things about the story was that, you know, I, I thought when he was talking to me, there was something going in my head. Is he recording me? And what he then did was he gave me all of the material about everything he had, including on day one when he came down to the house, he had recorded the conversation, okay? Um, but to be sitting there and to be given all of this internal um, information was incredible. And then, you know, we were meeting some of his associates, David Thompson and I, who's assistant editor of the programme, we were meeting some of his associates in hotel rooms across the road. Um, 
And it started actually, it started to get to the stage where I wondered, is this story too big for me? Because we are, whatever it is, a few people in this building. We're not this huge machine. Uh, we are this huge machine. We're not this huge department. So it was probably one of the biggest stories that I'll ever, I'll ever do. Um, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to know what Arlene Foster thinks of our coverage. I've often wondered that. Have you had much contact with her since then? No, and that's one of my big regrets. Um, and so far as there's some things happen to you in this job and you kind of think I've done the right thing but I regret the consequences of it and so during my City Beat days Arlene was always very kind and warm and um, I was doing the television show one night this is before Arlene became leader and um, I'd got some pretty traumatic news for a situation I needed to deal with behind the scenes and um, it was essentially a threat, okay, against life. And uh, Arlene came and hugged me behind the scenes and cared about me. And that's the relationship I had with Arlene. And then on the RHI story, uh, I was doing the radio programme one day, Gordo was gone, and the DUP's decision was, I think she was abroad, she wasn't talking to me about that story. And from that moment on, when we when we did the story day after day after day because we felt it warranted it, um, the relationship clearly started to go cold, and then this scene out of a movie imprinted in my mind and David Thompson's, um, where they decided that she would do an interview with me, and uh, this was all. What had happened was. The DUP had decided they were, she would do an interview with me and they had phoned the BBC that afternoon and said it's now or ever or never, except they weren't saying it was with me. They said it was to be with Chris Buckler and they wouldn't do it with me. And, and he was Ireland correspondent at the time? Yeah, and the BBC newsroom made the call and said, no, it'll be Stephen. So I had about 45 minutes to get prepped for that interview. Um, and when I went up there... Um, is it is it what do you call it? It's not the front the front building of Stormont. It's the one Stormont building. Castle. Yeah, I, I never ever ever forget this. So, uh, walking through the door, and here's all of these uh, older looking men in suits, just all sitting there, and I think they might have been DUP whoever they, those people are that run it executive or something yeah. right I'll never forget it and they're all staring at me and then I didn't know who he was but I then became then there was Andrew McCormick standing pale white in the corridor and I'm thinking who is that man um, I then walk into the building that Arlene was going to come into the room that Arlene was going to come into and there's Gordo sitting behind the desk staring at me along with Richard Bullock and just the tension in the room. And then paraded out to Andrew McCormick and Andrew McCormick is instructed to tell me, you know, and I'm thinking, this guy's under orders to tell me something here. Then I go back into the room, I sit down, in comes Arlene. Up until before RHI, it would have been, how are you, how are your mum? And she just looked at me and she said, you've been busy. Put her head down. And there was about five minutes before the cameras were ready and she did not lift her head till the cameras started. Let me ask you about Jamie Bryson. Have you any regrets about how often you've had him on your radio programme and TV programme? No. First of all, how often, how often has he been on? You tell me. So that is, these, these ill-informed people you know, who just for effect say Jimmy Bryson's on every day or whatever. Uh, I would suspect Jimmy Bryson is on. Um, I don't, you know, is Jimmy, is Jimmy Bryson, Jimmy Bryson is not regularly on the Nolan show. Well, he's on it more regularly than any other programme. Oh, he's absolutely. So I have a very, very strong view on anybody in this society determining 
that someone who you know, have a very, very strong view on us being very, very careful before the crowd decides who's acceptable and who is not. So I think there is a big irony also then in Northern Ireland about this. So let me get this right. So um, people, some of them in government, who have supported murder, uh, people who have criminal convictions for all sorts outside of government for murder and all of that, um, they are allowed to have a platform. And here you have uh, Bryson. Bryson uh, has many things that he should account for, um, but he's an articulate loyalist. Um, and he's trying to school himself in law to the point where actually he bores me stupid sometimes with all these clauses in law. So, so of course it brings me, me flack, but so what am I saying to someone who's an articulate loyalist who's trying to advance his, his views with legislation? Am I saying, sorry, I'm getting too much flack, so I'm going to keep you off the radio? No. Um, Who's the person that has asked him about his views on paramilitaries and drug dealing? Who's the person that has asked him if he is in those paramilitaries or has ever been? It's been me. But I just wonder also how much of a political machine is there behind trying to shut down an articulate loyalist? You've denounced... And if the same thing happened to an articulate nationalist, I would approach it exactly the same. You've denounced paramilitarism and its cancerous effect on Northern Irish society, extortion, drug rackets, prostitution, etc. And you've done that very forthrightly, but you've had Jimmy Bryson on and you've introduced him as somebody who is associated with people who are involved in paramilitarism at some level. Isn't there... Was associated, I think I said. Had okay, been. Had been. Isn't there... A double standard there. Well, is there? Because if that's a double standard, then how are any of us talking to lots of people in politics and community workers and many other people in Northern Ireland who we all know have had past ties to those organisations, some of them actually very proud of their past ties. So the test is whether so it's past ties. So if he had current ties to these people, that would be unacceptable. Well, I'm not talking about what, what I feel is acceptable or unacceptable. I'm saying... The way Northern Ireland society works is we have drawn a difference between people and what they presently do and what they used to do. And the important part, like th this brings me a lot of flack, the Bryson issue. But the important thing is, let's remove the name Bryson and let's look at then, let's say there is someone who has been involved in criminal activity in the past and they genuinely want to transition and they genuinely want to change. Have they got any role in this society or not? Now, has Bryson got a current charge against them for paramilitary activity? And if not, why not? And, and I think an interesting question is where, who, where are we drawing the line? Who are we Are we all just deciding that he's guilty or that anybody else is guilty. I don't, I'm not comfortable saying it about Bryson. Sure, sure. I'm saying it about everybody. Where's the line? What about, what about dissident Republicans? Can I say one other thing yeah. that's intriguing about Bryson? You see, the, 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 the journalist in me smirks inside uh, about those people who take the rather safe option of saying, they won't contact them for stories. For some reason, and this is a story that needs to be done, for some reason, he knows what's going on within our government before many of us journalists do. He gets government papers before many of us do. He's he's a pretty good source for a journalist. What about dissident Republicans or people who support dissident Republicans? Would you have those people on your programme? Dissident, dissident Republicans, no. Dissident Republicans are currently threatening to murder police officers. That's the difference. By the way, I've ha I have had dissident Republicans on the programme, now and again, per periodically, 
very sparingly, and there's all BBC rules around that. Different type of, different type of of, of interview. So, sorry to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would, depending on the context, depending on all the BBC rules around it. But what, like, <laughs> the reason I'm kind of going, it's about the principle of it, and it's a, it's it's it's. We should be very, very careful before before pressure allows any of us to be worried about speaking to someone who clearly knows what's going on and the police are not currently saying is involved in criminality. We shouldn't just go run with the mob. Let's talk about the trolling. Yeah. Um, so you've you've spoken quite publicly about the Pastor Jim Baru account and you sued that individual. You got a lot of money out of them. You got a retraction. They admitted that... What they had said about you was false, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's broader than just that individual. There's clearly a large number of anonymous social media accounts, as well as lots of other genuine people who dislike you. But there are lots of anonymous social media accounts which have been targeting you for a long time. What do you think is going on there? Um. I don't know, and so it needs it needs proper investigation because if it's me, uh, it, it'll be others. Um, so I genuinely don't know. Uh, is it possible that there is a political machine behind it? Absolutely, but I do not know. Um, I also think then, as well as that being a possibility, I've said it last time, one of the biggest untold stories in this country is how much can political operatives turn machines on and off against individuals. Um, but as well as that, there are is also then a significant number of people who um, they don't really mean it. That it's kind of some type of sport. There's that guy on the telly. Um, you, can, you can take it. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that as well. Um, it's 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 the ones who are organised who are trying to manipulate an agenda that I'm most interested in, or people who are going out to specifically harm me. And are there certain people or certain parties or certain stories which you know when you cover them there will be abuse All from those accounts? Absolutely. So you know, absolutely, and I think that again. Again, you know, the day that I should give up this program and walk out and 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 be ashamed of my salary is the day that I don't do a story because I know the flax coming afterwards. And that that hasn't worked. Have you noticed any drop off in it that they've tried it? It's not working with you, so they've moved to somebody else, or is it just as constant as it was two years ago? No, it's it's it, it's dropped off quite significantly. But I think if depending on what story came along it could just switch on again. That's the, that's the thing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's story dependent. Um, you know, and look, you experienced RHI. I happen to have RHI and story, you know, day in, day out. Those two big stories where we concentrated journalistically, we felt it was appropriate. And so I literally saw the abuse come from one alleged community to the other just swings depending on what story it is one of the words that I or one of the phrases that I've been struck by um, when speaking to people who know you is and there there are lots of words that they use they say that you are quite sensitive um, which people don't always see they say that you are very loyal um, to people who um, have worked for you or people who are your friends or whatever but they also say that you can be quite difficult or very difficult. How do you think you're difficult? Um, I'm a very driven individual who, um, when I think uh, there is a big, there is a, when I think there's a job to be done, I'm pretty difficult in that. I don't let go. And that can be, uh, that's a a lot of work. 
Um, I think people find me difficult. Are you demanding? Yes, a thousand percent. But I come back again to this. I, I, I think... I think I'm in the most amazing broadcasting organization in the world. I think the Nolan Show is a pretty special thing. And so on what planet would I be strolling around thinking it doesn't matter what we do this week or this month? So yes, I'm demanding. But 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 with that, um and this has happened in here on a number of occasions. You know, you talk about loyalty. I, you know, uh, I'm thinking particularly about some of our younger members of our team in here. But like, if they if they need stood up for, I'm equally as demanding of this organisation in terms of them. So that team means an awful lot to me. Let me just ask you a couple of questions at the end here. There's one story I want to ask you about, and it's 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 slightly sensitive because it involves somebody's death, but it's also public, so I think it's fair to ask about this. And it was a young man who needed a liver years ago called Gareth, and his father was on the show. I'm sure you do. It was, I mean, you 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 had several days of coverage of this, and it was it was a very emotion. It was a very emotive um, story because this young man was dying and he needed a liver, and the hospital said to him, you have to be clean of alcohol for six months. He was addicted to alcohol and he wasn't going to live that long, he thought. And you essentially had the consultant, um, I think from a London hospital where he'd been sent as a specialist and you grilled him and you said, how can this be right? How can this be right? This man's dying and he needs a liver and, you know, whatever. He eventually got better and I'm not actually sure if he ever got a liver I think maybe in the end he didn't need it or they found some other way to treat him but he got better and he died a few years later having gone back onto alcohol and drugs but in the interim he um, ended up in a young offender centre for assaulting his mother for threatening to kill her he assaulted a police officer he ended up in prison um, and then he ultimately died do you do you ever reflect on that? I mean, obviously, you, you, you can't in any way be responsible for what he did, but do you ever reflect on that and think, you know what, that hospital consultant was right and I didn't have the full story and they had looked at this case and there's a limited number of livers to go around and those rules are there for good reason? Um, so I haven't reflected on that individual story. So the answer is no, I, I, I haven't. But I, I think, um, you know, we, we, when we were talking the first time, we were talking about, you know, do you change as a presenter over time? And I, I think, you know, when you get to the stage I'm at, you kind of understand that the professional thing to do is to try to have as much of the story as possible. Um, and so am I better at that now than I once was? Yes, I think I, I, think I am. I'm a wee bit wary of some of the premise of your question and that, you know, um, because he was because he was offending, because he was in prison, does that affect his right to have a liver? We make judgments about people that are in prison. I'm not saying you are. And we make judgments about, you know, um, all different types of people who are, who, are, who are seen to be on the edges of society, but they've still got rights. I kind of, I don't, I can't, I can't articulate it enough. But I, I kind of, I, I, I feel motivated. How can I say it? I can just give you the most recent example, which is next year. Um, I've been in McGabry Prison for months now, filming, and it's completely changed me again, in terms of just thinking deeper about there's a there's a there's a health crisis at the minute. There's a shortage of resources. Um, But I was sitting during the filming um, with an arsonist who clearly needs major psychological help. Uh, So he's a criminal. He's an arsonist. Um, He's also mutilating himself and cutting himself every day. So does he come to the bottom of the queue because he's a criminal compared to someone in wider society that does not have a criminal offence? I don't know. 
Let me ask you one final question. You'll be relieved to hear. How would you like to be remembered? So the words that I'm afraid to say out loud because they sound so kind of wanky or something, right? Is like a decent, ordinary guy. There's so many people in this society trying to position me as something other than that, right? Um, So if I don't try to process it, a decent, ordinary guy who loves his family, loves his friends, is loyal, is kind. Um, professionally, how would I like to be remembered? As someone who had the balls to do the right story, no matter what amount of flack is going to come back. I do think, I do think this place is so toxic, as in Northern Ireland is so toxic, that... Um, If people like you, maybe people like me, you know, um, in fact, let's take both you and I out of it, that's better. I think Northern Ireland is so toxic that I would, I, I, I would hope that, you know, if I was in any way um, looked at after I was gone, that some young journalist might think, do you know what, you can, you you, you you can do well no matter what type of operatives are trying to bring you down. I think that's how I would put it. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Sam McBride and Kieran Dunbar. Sound design was by Graham Davidson. To read the print version of my two-part interview with Stephen Nolan, visit belfasttelegraph.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.